joined uh, this afternoon uh, from the United States by Martin Reeves, who's the author of uh, several books, the latest of which is The Imagination Machine, published by Harvard Business Review Press. So uh, uh, delighted to talk to you, Martin. Thanks very much, Frank. Um, it strikes me, Martin, that um, one of the most interesting things at the moment, obviously with COVID-19 uh, going on, is that there's the possibility that we might have another inflection point. One of the things that you mentioned in your book is that during several kind of um, global crises over the years, we've had a kind of a wave of innovation has kind of come through. Do you think COVID-19 could be yet another example of how a crisis uh, creates lots of opportunity? Well, I think there are different ways of looking at a crisis. I mean, you can um, experience it as a, a temporary negative deviation from normality, and then you can talk about the recovery, things coming back. And at a crude level, that's true. But if you look more closely, um, all major crises, you know, wars, pandemics, depressions, uh, something changes. It's not actually a reversion to the previous reality. Uh, there are new needs. So, for instance, you and I are talking on uh, on Zoom now, and that's new. The, the new norm of work that was established in a a very short period of time. And, um, you know, many other things we will uh, see have, have changed. And of course, those changes are um, obstacles and inconveniences for the average company, but are opportunities for innovation for, uh, for forward-looking companies. Uh, and then, of course, um, change happens on different speeds. So we, before the crisis, we already had a set of long-term dynamics in business, such as the rise of AI that didn't go away. Uh, but now they come back into focus. The long-term agenda comes back into focus now that we've, uh, we're coming to the end of this sort of short deviation due to the, the epidemic. So in a sense, that's why I wrote the, wrote the book. Um, it's, it's about uh, leveraging a change in order to reimagine new possibilities. And of course, in a, on a historical timescale, some companies are very good at, they're very good at being imagination machines, the thinking of something that doesn't exist and causing it to become the new reality. Okay, so if we accept that there probably is going to be a lot of um, imagine-based, innovation-based uh, uh, changes and, and uh, new infection points, what do you think is going to be the driving point behind that, given given the nature of the crisis that we've been in, things that we just haven't experienced for a long, long time, but people being locked down, the lack of socialization, um, concerns, fears, mental health, all of these sort of things. Do you see any sort of guiding principles for what the, the, the level of innovation is going to be about? Well, I think the trap here is to um, either think that nothing has changed, uh, you know, we're into recovery, things mm. come back to normal. Uh, but, but another trap is to to hunt for trends. In other words, a trend is um, a change which already has a name and is widely understood. Um, now, trends are important, but it's hard for trends to be the basis for competitive advantage because we all know about them. Um, um, so, for instance, uh, we're all on Zoom. We could say that that's a trend, um, remote working, but that's one that we all know about and we're all doing. So what you really need is... Um, is is the um, in mathematics you call it like this the second differential you want the change in the trend the inflection in the trend the new trend and some of those trends may not have names yet um, so um, you know, for example the first order trend is <clears throat> is that we're working remotely um, but as we work remotely you know it's hard for you and I to connect uh, emotionally or to have serendipitous interactions on. A traditional zoom call so maybe that's you know that's an emerging trend or an emerging uh, possibility and the the trick is really to be the first company that sees these new inflection points 
uh, gives them uh, a name and, and thinks about the possibilities that, uh, that stem from these things. And that can neither be complete fantasy, you can't just make those up, um, but neither can they be um, so well established and documented that, uh, that the, any advantage has been arbitraged away. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you talk in the book about putting yourself into real situations, kind of getting yourself out of this comfort zone and physically putting yourself in the interesting, going to the front line where the customers are and sometimes in challenging situations, maybe where things aren't going very well. For example, you you suggest in the book visiting, uh, if you're uh, the, the boss of a confectionery company and you find chocolate sales are collapsing, go to the city where that's happening and maybe by by immersing yourself in that environment, you might actually find something uh, obviously, we can't do that at the moment. Uh, we can't do the kind of, you know, get out of the building, see blank uh, kind of uh, mantra. Um, but at the same time, and having speaking of Steve Blank, I was interviewing him about 12 months ago, and he was saying, at the same time, we have the opportunity now to talk to people that we couldn't talk to simply uh, through the, the means of Zoom and stuff like that, because people aren't traveling and people uh, are locked down. So there's huge, huge opportunities there to actually take advantage of that. Any, any thoughts on yes, that? Yes. Um, well, a company is, I compare it to a sphere, the, the bigger the radius of the sphere, the, the lower the proportion of uh, surface area, the externally facing part of the sphere to the volume of the sphere. And a, a large company behaves that way by default. So it becomes more and more internally facing. And more and more people have jobs that don't rely on external signals. They rely on secondhand signals or just internal, internally generated signals. Uh, so I think um, getting out of the building is important, uh, literally, but also metaphorically, um, in order to see the change, which is the opportunity that you need to adapt to and imagine the new possibilities. And um, so one way of doing that is um, obviously to, to physically get out of the building um, um, and to do some, uh, you know, anthropology on your customers to really understand uh, not just how they buy your product, but what are their unmet needs, how do they use your product? Uh, are they more or less happy with it? Uh, do they have new needs and so on? Um, but we have a new, a new kid on the, on the block, um, uh, the, the, the power of modern analytics to, uh, to do the same thing uh, in a systematic fashion. Um, so I'm in an analytical profession, you know, consulting and, and uh, uh, my, um, my working life has, has been changed completely by these new analytical tools we have. We can hunt for very weak signals and very large data sets and even unstructured data sets and, for instance, uh, textual uh, data sets um, for the first signs of the new normal. Um, but the data doesn't tell the whole story, of course. The data gives the signal, um, but we don't have data on the, on the new unrealized possibilities by definition. Um, and so, therefore... Um, you know, framing and um, imagining the counterfactual possibilities, the things that are not the case, but could be the case, um, which are hinted by these signals is still an act of imagination. And that's really the, the grist of the book. Sure, sure. I mean, AI takes you only so far. I think this is one of the messages in the book, although you, you're saying it can take you quite a distance. Uh, yes. And there's almost kind of like two messages coming out of the book. Um, and uh, like at the start of the book, you talk about sort of the causal uh, sort of link between sort of AI can tell you that 60% uh, of people who buy a coffee will also buy a, a sugary snack to go with it. But you can't exactly tell us, well, were they really buying the sugary snack and they bought the coffee with it? Um, yes. And this is where imagination and intuition comes in. Do you think there's still gaps there in, in, in AI, some distance to travel? Oh, for sure. Um, and 
human well, I, think it's, it, I think it's not just a technological gap i think it's um inherent in the the whole machine learning paradigm so the mathematician judea pearl um wrote this wonderful book on um uh, causality and um you know essentially he distinguishes between three different types of cognition so there's what he calls correlative thinking you know if i buy coffee what else happens and machines by and large are already better than human experts in that area so if i see a, a blotch on my skin that's purple and has this shape you know uh, what what does that correlate with um and, and that is um so that's correlative thinking uh, and then we have causal thinking which is why is there a blotch on my skin and did I buy donuts because I bought coffee or the other way around? Um, so, um, so that one is, is beyond the reach of current um, so-called gradient descent algorithms, which is the main type of AI right now. Um, but technically that might be tractable at some point in the future. And then the third level is counterfactual thinking, which is thinking about things that are not the case, but could be the case. Um, you know, some of the things that are not true in the world uh, are physical impossibilities. They could never be true, but other things just happen not to be true. So that's the realm of the uh, imagination. And the machine learning can't analyze the data on the things that don't exist, but humans can look at a, a weak signal and say, you know what, we, we need to, we could invent the vacuum cleaner. There's a new need here for something that doesn't yet have a name. Um, so that is very much still the domain of human thought. And um, so the book, in a sense, is about um, how do we do that? Because the irony is that we all can do that. It's a basic human trait, but that we don't necessarily do it consciously and systematically, and we can't necessarily do it collectively in large organizations. So it's about the codification of the, the natural human art of counterfactual thinking. But it's also about... Um, getting the partition of cognition right. In other words, in the AI-empowered corporation, what do we have the machines do? What do we have the humans do? And how do they work together uh, synergistically? Sure. It strikes me that uh, that maybe in a scrappy um, tech startup or something like that, that a lot, of, a lot of the ideas that you have there are just grist to the mill. They're, yeah, yeah, bring it on. But in, in, a, in a, a large traditional organization, perhaps one that's actually doing okay at the moment in terms of the short-term metrics it might be a little bit harder that there are a lot more obstacles there's a, there's a whole bureaucratic system that has been set up to stifle creativity now how do you it's how you address that it's true um and and previously wasn't necessarily a huge problem because um historically we've had a sort of partition of the corporate economy into uh, into two camps you know we've had um, so startups whose job it is to, to search for a successful new business model, um, many of them uh, fail and some of, the, some of them that, um, uh, you know, find, find a good signal, have a great team, uh, get funded, uh, are able to uh, create some sort of successful new product or business model. And then large corporations, some of those corporations therefore grow and, or, or are acquired. And, um, and then large companies have traditionally coasted off those pivotal innovations with incremental extensions for many years. Um, one of the, uh, in the first chapter of the book, we show a very stunning and important piece of data, which is that the duration of competitive advantage has shrunk massively in recent years. Um, so, so statistically, um, until about 20 years ago, if you were a leader in an industry, you could reasonably expect to stay a leader at least for at least 10 years. And now that number is about one year. So what does that mean? That means that this partition between 
companies that search for new ideas and ones that exploit for a very long time those ideas, that partition has gone. And now large companies too uh, need to, if you like, recreate their entrepreneurial roots. And the irony here is that all great companies were founded on an act of imagination, some um, entrepreneurial bet. Um, but in pursuing success, they often uh, lose lose that now over time for a number of reasons. I mean, one of them we already dealt, already dealt with, which is internal orientation. Um, and another one is um, just mindset. I mean, it, it's natural for, for, for large companies to want to exploit their current business models, but they must also not forget, especially in today's environment, they need to create tomorrow's models too. And that creates a sort of paradox that's actually difficult to operate running and reinventing at the same time, what people call strategic ambidexterity. Um, and then there is structure. Um, you know, going back to Adam Smith, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's effective to subdivide work and to, uh, you know, you do the, uh, the heads on the Adam Smith's uh, pins and, and I do the, the shaft of the pin, and that's an efficient division of work. Um, but it prevents either of us from seeing new possibilities uh, holistically and it's very you know execution oriented and so the the functional efficiency of an organization is also the barrier uh, to, to 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 reimagination so you could say that the book is also about um identifying removing those barriers and an important point here is that those barriers some of them are physical like organizational structure but some of them are mental too um so we come to accept our mental models as facts for instance we say uh, Frank, you're in the journalism industry, and you're a journalist, and we think that that's a fact. In, in fact, that's a mental model. That's just one way of looking at what you do. We could uh, we could frame it otherwise, and I, I believe in the media business, the world is framing it otherwise. And and um, so just to see that we have a choice about mental models and to be uh, facile with the um, art of evolving mental models is an important part of the story, too. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what role um, diversity within organizations plays, not necessarily kind of traditional, the, the inclusion and diversity and, and all this and having, having people from different racial backgrounds and all that, but diversity in terms of, of maybe the backgrounds of people from, from the point of view of what their skill sets are, what their, you know, uh, so do we need, for example, to have more artists um, in positions in engineering based companies, for example? Yes, I think um, diversity is very important and, and, and slightly muddled topic. I, th I think we need to separate out um, what I call the, uh, the, the ethical or the political aspects of diversity. You know, it is, it is fair and just that we give equal opportunities to people from different backgrounds. That's, that's important. Um, but the, the book actually deals mainly with, with another aspect of diversity, which is <clears throat> that diversity is the or variance is, is the grist for evolution. Um, so we will not evolve new ideas unless we have alternative um, ideas and mental constructs. And they often come from minds that operate in different ways. And that is heightened by this um, rise of AI because as the routine cognitive work in management increasingly gets taken over by, uh, by machine learning, um, you know, the humans need to focus on more unique um, types of thinking like counterfactual thinking and uh, and uh, innovation, so 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 the value, the relative value of diversity becomes uh, be, becomes uh, very important, and and this operates at different levels. So um, you know, within engineers, we need um, engineers with different 
ways of looking at the world. And some of us are very, uh, you know, open-ended and conceptual and others are more sort of perfectors and uh, executors. So we need to create intellectual value chains, if you will, of different types of personalities to take an idea through the entire life cycle from um, reading a very weak signal um, through to uh, perfecting and codifying something. Um, but also um, with respect to um, uh, disciplines and worldviews. Um, so I sometimes say that the, the first stage of imagination, um, which we call the seduction, is where you're seduced by a weak signal that has poignancy, it suggests possibility. You know, that's akin to thinking like a novelist, the, the particular detail is essential. Mm. Um, if I said on average bikes have two wheels, um, it would be true, but it's, um, uh, uh, but it would uh, miss the possibility that, um, that somebody observed that actually they could sometimes have one or sometimes have three. Um, and it's the, it's the uh, we talk a lot about the role of anomalies and accidents and analogies in seeing the particular in the weak signals that suggests uh, the, new, the new possibilities. Um, yeah. But then later on in the idea life cycle, we need different types of minds too. And one of the trickiest problems in the, in the life cycle of an idea is for my idea to become your inspiration so that we begin to create um, a, a collective mental model and then a collective reality. And the book also deals with that. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, fascinating things that you say in, in the book, you're talking about uh, serendipity, happy coincidences. Um, and you say that you should look out for serendipity because it's a, a mathematical inevitability. Mm -hmm. uh, fascinated by that. Can you explain what you mean? Um, so uh, the institute I work for, the, the Henderson Institute, it's, we're basically hunting down the, the new ideas that um, business leaders will need for their next game. And sometimes um, it takes us um, upstream into fundamental research. And um, uh, so we have a, a collaboration with the London Institute of Mathematical Sciences um, on, on a very fundamental question, which is how does innovation actually work? And one of the problems with innovation is uh, we tell stories about innovation, but it, it's very hard to actually observe the innovation process because it's sort of hidden in the minds of uh, uh, inventors or shrouded in the mists of history. But in the digital age, we can actually observe all of the signals and all of the steps in an innovation process. And we, we did that. So we took some digital data sets of end-to-end -end innovation processes and said, what, what actually happens? And what we found was that innovation often happens by recombining known elements, they could be components of electrical components, for example, um, into, new, into new combinations. And if you look at the mathematics of that recombinatorial process, and, and we have a, a beautiful chart in the book, which is uh, an extract from the research, um, the, um, the, the way the math works, uh, it's, it's, an, it's an inevitability uh, that some things will turn out to be uh, later more useful than they initially seemed. I mean, it's, it's just a sort of uh, an inevitability of the way this recombinatorial innovation works. So that's, that's serendipity, essentially. Um, and so uh, being open to serendipity, harnessing ser serendipity, not to have a, an innovation process that's uh, so mechanical and, um, and rational that it is not open to the... Uh, uh, the sparks of the collisions between ideas and ideas and reality um, is, is, is a mistake. Mm -hmm. 
course, for an innovation to be uh, to be useful, it needs to be it needs to have constraints, doesn't it? I mean, you need to have certain sort of sets of rules. So, but you have this imagination, innovation. Everyone thinks it's about just uh, all sorts of way bring your wacky idea into the hackathon. Yes, yes. Um, there's a danger that if you just go too far on that and you don't actually have constraints, that it becomes a series of platitudes. Yeah. Um, at several levels, yes. Um, so. Um... What's the difference between you know, fantasy and 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 imagination? Um, imagination, useful imagination, is uh, is essentially constrained by the the laws of physics and economics. It is somewhat constrained, um, which is why we say that um, imagination depends on causal thinking. It's not the uh, antithesis of of of, of, of causal thinking. Uh, and then um, constraints are important in other ways too. So one of the ways of speeding up the process of the evolution of the mental model, in other words, working the idea, is to exaggerate or impose uh, impose a constraint. It's, uh, um, it's well known amongst innovators that if you say, well, <clears throat> how, would I, how would I do that bit with one hand tied behind my back? Or how would I do that if I only had, um, you know, a thousand dollars? The constraint can often force us um, to, uh, to, 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 to see new possibilities. It forces us to, uh, to reconfigure our, uh, our, our mental model. So yes, constraints are, uh, are an important part of the process. Mm -hmm. I'm also wondering about what, what degree of imagination that you, you see out there. I mean, we, we, we've, we're all familiar, I suppose, with the common kind of case studies, the, uh, the Jeff Bezos and the, uh, the attitude of day one and that. In a sense that sometimes these case studies, they just keep cropping up again and again. And I'm just kind of wondering, are they the outliers? Is that the reason why we hear so much about the same organizations? Um, or from your work, are you seeing more and more of that type of thinking in organizations? Um, well, yes, yes and no, because so there is a problem to be solved. And um, the problem to be solved is that as corporations grow, their, on average, their growth potential declines massively as a function of their age and scale. Um, and we can measure that with something we call vitality. So if you, if you think of that, the, the performance of a company, the value of a company is decomposable into two things. One of them is the performance, the current cash generation of the company. And the other one is, is future growth potential. If you strip out the performance aspect, you see this thing called vitality. And the vitality of companies declines by three percentage points every doubling of scale or age of the company on average. Uh, now, the good news is that there are exceptions, and those are the, except the exceptions are the ones we tend to, to talk about. The large companies that have, um, you know, like a phoenix come back to life um, or, you know, um, uh, rejuvenated themselves or continue, continue to grow. Um, you know, Amazon, Apple, um, Alibaba, and so on. It's no accident that many of them are the technology giants today, because technology is a huge driver of change. Um, on the other hand, um, the stories that we tell about these companies are often, um, they sound like um, imagination is a special power endowed to a uh, few special individuals, you know, people like Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos. Um, and um, we might also imagine that um, imagination is something which couldn't possibly therefore be systematized and managed. But the central thesis of the book is, um, of, of course, we can't know about the thing 
uh, that hasn't been invented yet with great precision and dealing with the, uh, the mind um, and, and innovation is, is inherently a frisky business. But nevertheless, um, at least as much as other unpredictable and complex aspects of human affairs, um, like um, consumer psychology or human resource management, at least to that degree, um, there's no reason at all uh, why we can't systematically uh, harness innovation as a unique human power in, in, in corporations. So the book actually is not so much about imagination, more precisely, it's about how large companies can harness uh, imagination, uh, but at the level of the company um, and at the level of the individuals in the company. Mm -hmm. So uh, finally, is there any chance you could give us a couple of key takeaways for one of the the most important things that we can do to make our organizations and our managers more, more imaginative and more innovative? Um, well, there's a lot to say, but let me maybe take one particular angle, which is um, if you're the leader of um, a currently or formerly successful company, but one that doesn't have enormous growth prospects, um, then what can you do to reignite imagination? Where would you begin the journey? Um, uh, and, and I think we, we, we spent a lot of time actually talking to some fascinating companies like uh, Nokia. The demise of Nokia at the hands of Apple is, is well known, but their resurgence as a leading um, telecoms network equipment uh, manufacturer is, 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 is lesser known. Uh, we spent some time talking to companies like that and asked the question, how do you reignite imagination, reignite growth in a mature company? And uh, we found a couple of things. So one of them is that um, crises are very important. Um, so we tend to um, do our most powerful work as humans when faced with the necessity of, of a crisis. Um, and so many leads we talked about, so you use an actual crisis or you precipitate a crisis. Um, you've really got to purpose, focus people's attention on survival and possibility. And the second one we already touched on, which is get out into the world. Um, you know, it's likely if you're a large corporation that, um, that you're many of your activities are internally focused. I mean, just observe your next meeting and, and take a scorecard. When somebody mentions something internal to the company, put a check mark on the left-hand side of the page and external to the company, like a competitor or a customer on the right-hand side of the page. If 80% of what you're talking about is in here, <clears throat> you know, you have a problem. So that's something a leader can, uh, can act upon. Um, the third one is to um, lay out ridiculously ambitious goals. So some of the leaders we spoke to said, the thing about a ridiculous goal is um, it actually forces you to think unreasonably. It forces you to let go of some of the things you think you know, uh, whereas a more reasonable goal um, would enable you to maintain your current mental model. Um, so sometimes um, the goal that you, where you don't know specifically how you could possibly attain it, um, the, the sort of massively ambitious goal has a, a function which is not just about um, quantity, it's about quality too. <clears throat> uh, another one is reflection. Um, uh, I, I love the, uh, the phrase attributed to um, uh, Bill, Bill Gates. He says, busy is the new stupid. Um, you know, commerce is so efficient and effective nowadays and we're all working 24 hours a day. And, um, you know, that may be very productive, um, uh, you know, albeit with the possibility of burnout and so on that you really need to think about. But the trouble is from the imagination perspective is it's not reflective. We spend a lot of time executing and not very much time reflecting on, on new possibilities. 
so just to communicate the idea that reflection is um, is 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 part of the uh, is part of the job too. And the last one I mentioned is, um, you know, what do you celebrate? You know, in your company, do you celebrate um, rainmakers? Um, uh, do you celebrate administrators? Um, uh, do you celebrate, um, you know, hierarchical seniority? Because um, there are some companies that celebrate quite deliberately their entrepreneurial heroes. So there's this Japanese services conglomerate, which is a very successful serial innovator called Re Recruit, uh, which we deal with in the book. Um, so they have a deliberate policy of making sure that most of the limelight goes to their entrepreneurial heroes, the people that have created new businesses. And uh, they glorify the, uh, the process of entrepreneurialism um, for several reasons. One, one of them is that that's the sort of behavior they want more of. Um, secondly, they understand that in the long run, that's where a lot of the value comes from, the new possibilities. Um, thirdly, they realize that if you don't do this, um, often the mavericks get excluded from the efficient modern corporation. They become marginalized, so they take special care of them. And then the fourth one is they want to, uh, by celebrating these stories, they want to create new role models. They actually want everybody to become and to believe in the possibility of them becoming an entrepreneurial um, uh, uh, hero. So that's the culture of this company. And that's something, the things I've listed in response to your question, Frank, are all things that um, leaders can initiate. They're all high leverage uh, moves. So those will be some good, some good places to start, I think. Great. Martin, it's, uh, it's an excellent book, uh, The Imagination Machine, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And thank you for taking the time to, to talk to me today. Thank you, Frank.